find your place in Luke chapter 1. We're going to continue in our series. We've just simply called an upside down kingdom. What Luke is providing for us in his gospel is a picture of God's kingdom that is unlike anything that was anticipated uh, when Jesus came. They were looking for something very much different than what Jesus came to do and what Jesus was. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 5 through 25. We're going to be looking at the foretelling of John the Baptist as he was uh, going to be the forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ, the forerunner to the Messiah, the forerunner that would usher in the kingdom of God here on earth. And if you think about a forerunner, you shouldn't think of a car. Hopefully you're thinking of someone that comes before someone else. Think of it like this. If you've been to a concert, rarely do you go to a concert and the main event or the main artist is the only one singing or playing, right? You go there, and I can remember years ago, I probably told this story. Uh, I was uh, in high school, and we got tickets to Alabama. It's my favorite country group of all time. I've loved them from the earliest days that I can remember listening to country music. So we went to the Barnhill Arena there on the University of Arkansas campus, and we were going to see Alabama. I was thrilled, but there were also two or three other artists uh, that that led into their set, and so Neil McCoy was one of them, and and he was blown away that there were two seats in the very front row on, on the aisle that no one had occupied yet. And so he told everybody, hey, when these people come, it doesn't matter if I'm in the middle of the song, we're going to stop the show, we're going to stand to our feet, and we're going to applaud these people because they finally showed up. My friend Jeremy and I were at the concert with my mom and my sister, and Jeremy and I kind of looked at each other and thought, we need to go down there. And uh, I don't remember how we got through security, but we came down, we got through the middle aisle, we came and sat in those two seats, prime location. Neil McCoy back then was, was a hot and upcoming artist, and he stopped the show. Everybody, 10,000 people or more, stood to their feet in Barnhill Arena, and they applauded Jeremy and I because we had finally arrived. What they didn't know is we'd come from just up there. <laughs> Neil McCoy was a forerunner to Alabama. You think about that, we understand this to be true. You see it in a boxing match. You see it in an MMA fight. Usually, if you're going to watch an MMA fight, if you don't want to pay for the, uh, the, the, the broadcast, then the only fights you're going to be able to see are those forerunning fights leading up to the main event of which you've got to pay for. We see it in concerts and, and, and comedy shows. And if you were at the Christmas parade yesterday in the village area, you also saw it. You saw floats after float after float come through the village area, and all of them were a precursor, a forerunner to the main event. And who was the main event there in the parade? Santa Claus, old Saint Nick. He was the last person to come. Yeah, the name. He was the last one to come through. Everybody was about to. In fact, we, we had a booth. We had a parade float yesterday. I got the instructions for it, and it says, do not dress up as Santa. There is only one Santa. That's what it said on the sheet. We were forerunners to old St. Nick. We find the same sort of situation right here in this passage in Luke chapter 1. 
John the Baptist, as we're going to see, is going to be the forerunner to Jesus. He's going to be the one who is pointing people and preparing the way for Jesus Christ. We're going to see this morning that he is God's gracious gift who will prepare the world for Jesus. God's gracious, wonderful, beautiful gift. And so look with me, if you will, Luke chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 5. We're going to read through verse 25, and then we're going to unpack this passage of Scripture. Luke tells us this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Some of your versions may say Zechariah. He's of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, "How, how shall I know this is? How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What a day that was in the temple. When Zechariah was visited by this angel named Gabriel, what we need to know is... The nation had been experiencing darkness for 400 plus years. We just sang a song about the darkness that was over the, the, the landscape of the earth and how Jesus brings the light. That's exactly the situation as it was in Palestine at this point. The people had not heard from a prophet since the days of Malachi. As the Old Testament closes and the Gospels open up the New Testament, in the middle, in the midst of that intertestament period was 400 years of darkness. Heaven had been silent as the world awaited the coming of the Lord. And in that darkness, in that silence, what you have there are the spiritual leaders of Israel who have now become shackled by tradition. They care more about the things of what they consider the law and what the priest, the high priest have added to it 
than anything else. You you find spiritual leaders now inundated with corruption. And then on top of that, sort of icing on the cake, if you will, is the fact that at the time that this prophecy is taking place, at the time that Jesus is about to come upon the scene, you have a leader in Jerusalem who is a wicked, wicked king. Herod the Great is his name. He ruled Judea at this point. He was nothing more than a puppet king. He'd received his commission from Mark Antony in the Senate there in Rome around about 40 B.C. And then three years later came to Jerusalem and began to rule. History tells us that he was a tyrant. He was a man who used the backs of his own people to expand the temple area, to build great buildings, all of this to spread his fame. The reason he's called Herod the Great is because he worked hard to earn that name on the backs of his people. He was also a very paranoid and, as I said, wicked man. History tells us that he had nine, perhaps even ten wives, and one of those wives he had executed for no reason whatsoever. Under his leadership and without a word from God, what we find in the Holy Land is a dark world with no light on the horizon. And yet the Bible tells us that God had not abandoned his people. That's what Gabriel's message is all about as he comes to Zechariah. He's coming here not just to tell them that he's going to have a baby, he and his wife, but also that this baby will be the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. Light was beginning to dawn upon the world. Prophet Malachi had prophesied that God would send a messenger just like this, send a messenger in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Zechariah would soon understand this prophecy not to be someone else, but to be his own son that Elizabeth, his wife, would bear. He says toward the end of Luke chapter 1, he says, The sunrise shall visit us from on high. As he's now reflecting, his son has been born. He's reflecting and he's saying, This is exactly what God has been pointing to. The sunrise is visiting us. The night before that sunrise had been a long, dark period. But the faithful and bright flashes of hope from God's word are now assuring the people that one day the night would end and day would dawn. Son of righteousness, as Malachi said, was coming to bring healing and joy. Prior to this breaking of light in the darkness, what do we find in the other parts of the New Testament? We, we hear prophets like Isaiah talking about one who's going to come like a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You have this prophecy of this coming one who would prepare the way to be the forerunner to the Messiah so that the people would be prepared to meet the Lord. As the kingdom of God is ushered in, they are prepared for it. So this long darkness was about to experience sunrise, and Zechariah's soon-to-be son would be the forerunner of that dawn of light. He would be, as we see here, God's gracious gift. And I want to share with you this morning just three simple ways that John, as the forerunner, was a gift. First of all, I want you to see John was a gift to his parents. John was a gift to his parents. If you would, look with me there in verse 24 and 25 again. It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. And she says this, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. John was a gift to his parents. 
You see, I don't believe it's any accident that Luke here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's recording this gospel, writing it down for Theophilus and for you and I, there's no mistake that, John, or that Luke here begins his gospel talking about two women, talking about the babies that two women will be carrying. You see, children, the Bible tells us, are a gift from God, and they're part of that divine command in Genesis 1 to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God loves Babies. God loves children. God is passionate about babies. So by beginning the story here with pregnancy rather than adulthood, and, and Luke could have easily have done that. Luke could have began his gospel with the ministry of Jesus and just chronologized the, the, the final three years of his life, starting with that maybe that first miracle as he turns water into wine and, and then culminating up to the, to the ascension. And he could have easily recorded that. But Luke is giving a detailed account of the life and the ministry of Jesus, even the precursor to Jesus. And so that's going to begin in the womb. Let me just take a step further. That's not in the notes, and it's free today. <laughs> if the story of the Lord Jesus Christ begins in the womb, Amen. should we not put more emphasis on the womb these days? Amen. We're living in some very strategic times as a country when it comes to the issue of abortion. May God have mercy on us for our sin in that area, and may we as a country do the right thing and reverse that. That was free. Didn't plan to say that. Just came through my head. So he begins the story here in the womb. Luke, I believe, is illustrating how, how God in his infinite wisdom placed, think about this, his entire plan on the backs of two baby boys, not even conceived at this point. And he's already talking about how everything is going to rise and fall upon them. One of those babies is going to be born to a woman who is older and barren. That idea, that word of barren, you can think of it as a desert. It's old, it's decayed, it's dried up, it's useless. That's what the womb of Elizabeth had become. Impossible of pregnancy. The other baby's going to be born to a young woman who is a virgin. She's never known a man. She's betrothed. She's engaged to Joseph. But at this point, that has not been consummated. It has not been finalized. She's never known a man. And yet she's going to be pregnant with the baby boy. And on the, the backs of these two boys is going to ride God's kingdom and how he deals with humanity. All of these, both of these are miracles in their own right. In the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth here, they are beyond the years of childbirth, as that word barren speaks of. We also see here that Zechariah is a priest. Luke gives us very clear details about who these individuals are. And Zechariah is a priest. He's from the division of Abijah, which means that his household, his family, was tasked with service in the temple that coming from King David. Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, meaning that she was from the priestly line just like Zechariah. The Bible tells us that the priests were divided into 24 divisions. If we were to go to 1 Chronicles 24.10, and we would see here that, that, that Zechariah's division, the house of Abijah, was the eighth division. And they would serve twice a year, one week at a time. They would come to the temple. They would serve there during that time. And they would worship and lead in worship of the Lord. According to the Mishnah, before each of the two daily services, four sets of lots were used to determine the particip participants. 
On this particular day that we're reading about here, the lot finally fell on Zechariah. If you can picture what's going on here, they cast these lots, and it's going to determine what their service is going to be on this particular day. And, and the, the primo of primo type of service positions was to, burn the, to offer the burning incense before the Lord. And so on this particular day, the lot falls upon Zechariah. All of a sudden, he, he skyrockets to the apex of his career. The offering of the incense was the grandest event in his existence. Many of the priests never got this opportunity, and no priest could ever serve in this capacity more than once. Zechariah's heart, you can imagine, was thrilled. Uh, sure, he couldn't wait to, 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 to get home and tell the story and, and share everything that he got to experience with Elizabeth. And so he entered the temple area to serve alongside his priestly colleagues on this particular day. And as Luke records it, we see here that there are people outside worshiping. There's people inside who are doing the, 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 the sacrificial type of work. Zechariah enters and he sees there in the court of priests... The sacrifice was being made. Outside, there are people, faithful worshipers, praying in the court of Israel. And then he steps into the holy place. And before him rose the, the richly embroidered curtain of the Holy of Holies before him. And behind that is the, 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 the um, cherubim and the golden ark and all of that glory there. It's resplendent with cherubim woven in scarlet and blue and purple and gold. It was a magnificent edifice. To his left was the table of showbread. Directly in front of him was the horn golden altar of incense. And, and then to his right stood the golden candlestick. Zechariah purified the altar. That was part of his duties on this day. And he's waiting joyfully for the signal to offer the incense so that, as it were, these sacrifices are lifted up to the Lord in a sweet incense of prayer. It's here at this moment, as Luke tells us, that Zechariah encountered Gabriel. More than likely, the other people in the temple area did not see this, did not witness this. This was only for Zechariah. He stood on the right side of the altar, Gabriel did. And Zechariah, as you can imagine, is terrified by what he sees. Many times we, begin to, we, we have a tendency to think that angels are cute and cuddly beings. But if you read the word of God clearly, that is not the case when the angels encounter mankind. The typical response is a covering of the eyes, a covering of the head. It's even falling down in fear, fearing for your own life. Angels are terrifying. They come in the presence and the glory of God. They come in the majesty of on high. And so we as humans cower before them. And that is exactly what Zechariah is doing here. And yet he's told not to fear. He's told to listen and to take in what he's hearing. Why is that? It's because angels are God's messengers. They come not to terrify us. They come to deliver a message. And Z Gabriel here came to Zechariah with a message. He and Elizabeth were going to have a son. It's interesting that he says the son's name, the son's name is going to be John rather than Zechariah or another family name. In Hebrew, it's Yohanan. It means God has been gracious. You think about names in the Bible, you probably know that names are important to the storyline of what is being told in the Word of God. Zechariah's name, for instance, means Jehovah has remembered. 
Jehovah has remembered. So what Gabriel's message is uh, to Zechariah was that God had heard his prayer. He had remembered his prayer and answered it. And that immediately leads us to a question of what prayer? What, what has John been praying? Is it talking about there in the temple area? Is it talking about a prayer that maybe his wife had been praying for years? I believe it's probably that. That it's not a prayer right there in that moment. Zechariah was focused on the task. He was focused in leading in corporate worship for the people of God. But back home, he and his wife had been praying for a son. They'd been praying for a child in general. And now Gabriel comes with a message saying, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth's name means God is my oath. And so Gabriel's news here also speaks to the faithfulness of God that Elizabeth's name represents. God is an oath maker. So this godly couple had longed for a child for decades. They had prayed for years, and, and yet Elizabeth had not been able to become pregnant. She was barren. More than likely, they'd given up on the thought of having a child. That's what sometimes happens to us, right? You begin to pray for someone, you begin to pray for something, and, and the answer doesn't come when you want it to or when you expect it to, and, and yet you may continue to pray and pray and pray, and sometimes you may even find yourself praying but not really expecting much. Perhaps that's where Zechariah and Elizabeth were at this point. Zechariah's own description here explains this. He talks about, he mentions how he is old, and he says, my wife is advanced in years. Uh, gentlemen, we need to listen to his wisdom here. He had been married long enough to know that you never talk about your wife's age. You round it up or round it down, but you don't speak specifically. <laughs> Here's what we know about this couple. They had grown used to the cultural shame of not having children. Used to it. I, I can imagine early on in their marriage, Elizabeth is hanging out with her girlfriends, and maybe they're doing the, the work. They're down at the river, and they're washing clothes, or they're cooking, or whatever they may do, and she's hanging with the ladies from the village, and, and they're just asking, hey, when are you and Zechariah planning to have children? I don't know. You know, we're trying. Whenever the Lord would, 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 would be, give us that favor, whenever the Lord would be gracious to that, and we're expecting it, we want it. And so that was the question early on. As she began to age a little bit, the, the, the concern changed. It wasn't so much a question. Now it's, hey, we're praying for you, Elizabeth. I know you want a baby. I, I know you and Zechariah want a, a child. We're, we're praying with you. We're praying alongside you. And now as she's advanced in years, quote unquote, they don't express the concern they don't ask the question now they whisper on the peripheral of those relationships you know she can't have a baby poor elizabeth she's barren can you imagine the shame that would have been in the culture and the day in which this is that's where they're at but through all of their disappointments what we see here is zechariah and elizabeth continue to serve the lord we learn something here from these two individuals we learn here how to respond to disappointment. You see, your disappointments will either make you bitter or they will make you better. And I think what we find in Zechariah and Elizabeth is that their disappointment, their shame of not having children, not being able to procreate was something that did not make them bitter, but it made them better. They prayed, they leaned in, they trusted the Lord. They walked righteously and blamelessly before the Lord. They were disappointed that their prayers had not been answered, but it did not enable or it did not uh, keep them from trusting in God's goodness and then finally 
in God's sovereign timing. And that's what it, that's the way it always is, right? It's not our timing, it's not your timing, it's not someone else's timing. It's God and his sovereign timing comes. And Gabriel says, your prayer has been heard. My first comment to that, well, maybe not my first, but one of my comments would have been, uh, 30 years ago would have been a lot better than today. I'm kind of old now. You ever tried to raise a newborn at 90 years old? Not so fun. Like I'm 43 and I can't imagine starting over right now. Like I can barely get down on the floor, play with a new pup we just got last week. It's crazy. But that's not what we hear from them. God's timing is perfect. And he answers their prayer. He gives them the gift. And John was that gift. I want us to make sure that we catch something here. We should not look at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the answer to their prayer. We should not read a prosperity type of gospel into it. In other words, if we will pray, if we will do what's right, if we will be righteous and walk with God and, and, and live a certain way and do certain things or don't do certain things, then we will get something. That is not the clear teaching of the word of God. We don't get blessings because we live righteously. We are blessed because God is a good, gracious God. We should live righteously regardless of that. Here's the truth about life. It's going to be full of both valleys and mountaintops. Sometimes, many times even, you're going to have more valleys than you're going to have mountaintop experiences. And in all of that, God is just, God is good, God is faithful, and we must walk in obedience to him regardless of the situation. John was a gift to his parents. Secondly, I want you to see John was a gift to his people. Look at verse 16. Luke says, And he, this is Gabriel speaking, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. See, John here was God's special chosen vessel sent to prepare Israel for their Messiah. He would be born in a miraculous way. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb and follow the lifestyle of a Nazarite. His life would be something glorious. It would be completely consumed by God, which would enable him to be used in that powerful Elijah type of way that Malachi spoke of. He would be the voice crying in the wilderness that Isaiah spoke of, calling the nation of Israel back to the Lord. Gabriel here speaks of John's ministry by explaining it so Israel would be captivated and drawn in. Their homes would be revolutionized. Fathers would awaken to their true parental obligations and responsibilities. They would avoid the failures of, of great heroes in the past, like Eli and Samuel and David, who were godly men, walked with God, and yet failures as a father. Eli's sons were killed by God. Samuel's sons the people came to Samuel and says, we don't want your sons to continue in your leadership. David, we know, failed miserably in how he dealt with sin amongst his own children. One rose up against him. Israel, through this forerunner, would be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And at this point, we need to know, we, we understand from church history, we understand from history itself that Israel was longing for the Messiah who would free them from the Roman tyranny and, and restore the glory of the kingdom. 
But as we shall see as we continue, John came as the forerunner. He came as one preaching a message of repentance and baptism. He spoke against their sin rather than the sin of Rome. This is why we're talking about an upside-down kingdom here. This forerunner is not going out like the shield-bearer for Goliath, carrying armor and marching out in battle array to defeat the foes. That's not what John comes to do. He comes as one preaching repentance and faith, not to Rome particularly, but to Israel. John was a gift to his people, preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith, but that's not all that he was. Thirdly, John was a gift to the planet. Look down at the last part of verse 17. Gabriel says, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's sole purpose as the forerunner to Jesus was to make ready a people prepared to meet the Lord. That's Israel, and as we see the gospel unfold, the story unfold in the gospels and on into the book of Acts, we see here that it was much more than just the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, at this point in history, there were not 12 tribes of Israel that could be found. The ones who were carted off the 10 northern tribes in the 722 BC, a conquest of, by Assyria of the northern area, those people never came back in large groups to be able to be identified. So really what we're only talking about here is the nation of Ju- Judah, the southern tribes. And so it's got to be more than that. I believe what John here is, is foreshadowing is that the gospel is for the nations of the world. As God makes a people for himself through repentance and faith. The scope is bigger than Israel. It began with Israel, but as the Bible teaches us, it reaches every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so in the spirit, in the power of Elijah, he would preach and warn both Jew and Gentile of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5. In light of God's looming judgment against sin, John here is calling sinners to repentance and faith. And so the birth of John reminds us of God's love He remembers his love for humanity. He remembers his promise to heal and redeem. Keep in mind here, there has been silence from heaven for 400 years. The Jews are wondering, has God abandoned us? We sat here and shackled to the tyranny of Rome. We are slaves in our own country. Has God forsaken us? Has God not care about us? We are living faithfully. We we are the strictest we've ever been as a nation. And yet Jesus would come and call those leaders. Nothing more than whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Why? It's because they were trying to find God through religion rather than relationship. God had never abandoned his people though. John is proof of that. God loves humanity. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. Advent on the third, the third Advent Sunday is the Sunday of love, or we should say the candle of love. When the candle is lit, it represents John the Baptist, who is that forerunner, shining in a dark place. Reminds us of God's love for us and the fact that he's not abandoned us. And so as the forerunner to Jesus... John's ministry would be focused on preparing people to meet the Lord. I don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty of the rest of this passage, but I just want to point out a couple things here. Zechariah, when he heard this news, had trouble believing it, right? Gabriel's standing there before him and says, hey, your wife who's barren is going to have a son. 
Uh, she's gonna, na- you're going to name him John. He's going to be this forerunner. He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to make a way. He's going to prepare the people for the kingdom that's coming in through the Messiah. This is going to happen. And John, or, or Zechariah, who's standing there in the temple area, and he's receiving all of this, asks the question, how shall this be? Hello. I am Gabriel. That's what he says. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sitting here with this message. And this is the James Taylor translation of it. You don't understand or believe this? Dude, what's wrong with you? Because you don't believe, you're going to be mute. Many scholars believe that translation there is not just unable to speak, but he's also unable to hear. But think about what's happening here. Zechariah sees Gabriel in all of his glory, his very appearance enthralled Zechariah with fear. I mean, he's, he's, he's beside himself with fear of what he sees. On top of that, Zechariah and Elizabeth believed God. They were not pagans. They were not doubters. They were not faithless people. No, they believed God. They knew God's word. They knew the Lord answered prayer. They, they could take you to, to the testimonies of the Old Testament to prove that. They trusted him to be true. They knew the stories of God's faithfulness in their history. And yet there is no, no reason standing before Gabriel that they should not have believed, but yet they, or he did not believe. Today, there may be some of you who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but for whatever reason, you're failing to believe what God wants for your life. You're failing to just kind of step out into that. You're failing to live in that and walk in that. I mean, God wants you to be righteous and blameless. God wants you to live for him. God wants you to know his word. God wants you to serve him. God wants you to love him. God wants you to share the gospel with others. And and that's just you being a Christian, and you're failing to walk in that. Simply because you just won't believe that the Holy Spirit has the power to do that transforming work in your life. Some of you, God's leading you to do something new. Let's just go to Vision 2024. It has nothing to do with this text necessarily, but when God leads his church to do something, it's incumbent upon us to say, Lord, I don't know how, but I trust you. I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm not saying it's a blind step of faith. It's not a blind step of faith. There's records in the word of God that says he's faithful and true. There's records even from our own church experience that says he's faithful and true. And so when God puts it on our hearts to do it, we need to take the steps to walk it out. Zechariah should have responded, Gabriel, I received this message. Elizabeth, who's been barren, there's no possible way she could get pregnant. But I believe you. I believe you. It's going to happen. Some of you here may be watching us online. You're not in relationship with Christ. But for a while, you said under the teaching of the word of God, you, you, you've come to understand the gospel on some level. You believe it. You understand it to be true. And today, you just haven't taken a step of faith to say, you know what? I, it's not just book smarts or head smarts. I want it to be a heart smart. I want to believe here. Take that step of faith. What is it that keeps us from doing that? What is it that, like Zechariah, standing there before Gabriel says, how shall this be? God, how can you change my life? God, how can you take something that's so broken, so messed up? Man, I got so much baggage in my past. I got so many skeletons in my closet. I can't even keep the doors closed. It's so bad. How can you possibly change my life? And God looks at you and says, you don't worry about the details. I can speak the word and change your life. If you'll just trust me in this, if you'll believe me in this, this is what I will do. 
Thankfully, Zechariah walked out of that temple. And for nine months, he's trying to communicate all the things that happened. And finally, when the baby's born and they're about to name him something else, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get that in a couple of weeks. As they're about to name him something else, he's like, no, his name will be John. And after that moment, he can tell the whole story. What a glorious time that would have been to be there as a fly on the wall, watching all that happened. But it goes back to the temple area where he was seeing Gabriel, hearing from God. And in that moment, he winced a little bit, but he believed. Will we believe today? Will we believe this forerunner to Jesus to tell us all of Jesus can and wants to do in our life? I pray he will. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.